and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Good morning. There I am. There I am. My name is Paul Trimble. I'm the senior pastor here at Bentry, and it's just a pleasure to come before you today. Let's continue together as we open God's Word and study. We continue in our worship in John 3. Uh, if you want to go ahead and turn there, you can in our series, uh, So That You May Believe. I haven't said this in a while, and we have lots of new people joining us at Bentry Church, so I thought I just might give you a little bit of heads up why Sunday preaching Uh, is such a big deal here. If you're new to Bentry Church, something you should know about us is we're different from a lot of churches today, a bit more like old school churches from back in the day. You know what I mean? Now, what I, I mean by that is I don't do preaching that helps you have a better life. Or how to be more confident at work or how to have your best life now. What we don't do is take on popular topics or tell you how to vote or what cause to be a part of. Or how to make more money and influence people and be uh, just better in life. Not that those are necessarily bad topics. I don't mean that. But you can get all that from a TED Talk online. And TED Talks are like 18 minutes long. I can't even introduce myself in 18 minutes. So what is this time of preaching all about? This time of preaching right now is is part of our worship to God. Just like singing and prayer and giving, all those are parts of worship. But this time of preaching is at the core of what we do. It's why we literally come together together. To hear God's word proclaimed. Now during COVID shutdown over a month ago, not to bring up bad subjects, I've gone, we had to go online. That's not church. And when we're all separated, and if you're watching online, not to say I'm upset with you at all. Some people have to watch online. And if you're sick, don't come. Watch online. But what we do here is we come together. We're the church to hear the truth of God's word proclaimed. And because of that, we exalt God when we find out who he is. Does that make sense? We do expository preaching here, or what we call verse-by-verse preaching and teaching. That means that we let the Bible text drive the message, not our own desire. What that also means is that when I, or hopefully anyone, preaches here at Bentree, they're explaining the meaning behind the text. Because here's what we believe as a core of our church doctrine. The Bible is God's infallible, inspired word. It is our only authoritative source of faith and practice. We firmly believe that is profitable to study A to Z, all 66 books. We believe that the Bible is not only inspired, not only infallible, but we also think, check this out, that it's sufficient for everything we need to know about God right now. And certainly the Bible does not contain all of that God knows. That would be impossible. He's infinite. The book is limited. But what it does contain is his revealed truth for us. And that's sufficient. That's enough. My job as a preacher is to deliver God's truth from the Bible. That means explanation of that truth and then how to apply it to our life. The 5th century John Christenstrom, one of the early church fathers, he said this, the objective of preaching is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. I like that. 
And certainly there are opinions that I may hold and even communicate to you. But the goal is to get as much of the truth of the scripture in you as possible. Not my opinion. Your job today is to listen to what I tell you and then carefully compare that to God's word in your lap. That's why I beg you to bring your Bible. If what the preacher says does not line up with scripture, disregard it. (laughs) Even if they're funny, even if they're engaging, even if they're obviously extremely good looking like me. But if what the preacher preaches doesn't line up with just your opinion, listen close. But it does line up with scripture, then you need to check what you hold as truth because you're off. Because here's the thing. The true goal is to help you get that biblical truth down in the core of you. Because it's in the core of you that you will respond to the Holy Spirit of God speaking the truth from Scripture. You see how that works? Solid biblical preaching will help you grow into spiritual maturity. And listen, we need spiritually mature people helping others in the church to grow, to disciple them, and to other spiritually mature people so they can do the same. Because the church is a body of believers. We are a family who minister to each other. Preaching is about equipping the people to become all that God has intended you to be. Now here's what I'm getting at. Preaching does not just come after the singing as part of the service. Preaching is worship. All of us together. That's why we're together. It's why it's not cool for you just to go, well, I'm having a rough week. I think I'll stay home. Because you rob us of you. Do you see how that works? You just stole from me when you go, I just want to stand off from the body. My job is to not just show you the truth. My job is to help you see the depth and the greatness and the glory of that truth in God. Who he is. And what we do, we do that by exalting that truth as we work through this together as a family. Your job is to take that truth, drive it deep into your heart. Give God your attention in this time of worship. Don't let the sermon just kind of go by. Grab hold of it. Cool beans? Cool beans. Let's get to it. But first, let's pray, ask God's blessing. Here we go. Heavenly Father, we just come to you in the matchless name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Our prayer is that you would just bless us, bless our time together. Send your Holy Spirit into our minds and into our hearts. Help us to grab these truths that you have for us. Help the Holy Spirit just speak directly to us. Help us to worship you with our focus and our engagement of your word today. Father, I pray that you would help me to deliver this truth through this time of preaching. That that this preaching would not be my opinion, but your truth from Holy Scripture that we see. Help me to explain your word, your truth, and to do, exalt it, exalt you in this time of preaching. It is in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Well, we've been here the last few weeks in this part of John, John 3. As Nicodemus, this leading Pharisee, this wealthy, well-educated Pharisee, comes to Jesus late one night to ask him a question. The question is... How can I get into heaven? How can I be saved? How can I get my sins forgiven? Now, the question, which he doesn't 
actually ask, does he? But we know it's the question on Nicodemus' heart because of how Jesus answers and converses with him. Jesus says this in verse 3. He says, truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And we also know that question that comes, uh, that Nicodemus has on his mind because Nicodemus objects to Jesus' answer. He says, how can anyone be born when he is old? Can I crawl back into my mother's womb a second time? Right away, Jesus gives him truth when he says this in verse 5. Remember, he says, truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. What we've studied these last few weeks is that this clear picture that Jesus is painting for us, that to enter the kingdom of heaven, to be saved by God, is something that happens to you, not something that you do to be saved. It's critical you get that. Jesus is very clear with Nicodemus. He doesn't mince words. Just like you had nothing to do with your physical conception and your birth, your spiritual birth also does not originate or is completed by you. Or to say it more clearly, from start to finish, our salvation is totally and completely a work of God alone. Or the most simple way to say it, we learned a a couple of months ago now, we're monergistic, meaning mono, meaning God alone brings the cause and the effect of our salvation. Remember from our last time together in verse 8, the wind blows where it pleases and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going, so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit of God, what we call the third member of the Trinity or the Godhead, that Spirit called the breath, you remember that pneuma of God? He breathes spiritual life into us. The Holy Spirit working through the direction of God the Father to save when and where he wants to save us. This is straight from the mouth of Jesus oh, on how a person is saved. I don't know how you could argue this. You, you'd be arguing with Jesus. Because that's all that we've been talking about is Jesus' words. And Nicodemus answers in verse 9. He goes, I, I don't get it. How can these things be? He doesn't get it. He walks out of there not a believer. Now, we think he's saved later on, right? But not here. Jesus says, you are a teacher of Israel, Nick, and you don't get this? Nicodemus has this title as the top teacher of theology for the nation of Israel. And he says, you have that title and you don't understand these things? Now, last week we studied closely as Jesus switched from speaking to Nicodemus personally to speaking in the plural form. Do you remember that? Watch what Jesus says now in verses 11 through 18. If you would stand, if you can, stand with me as I read our text. Just stand out of respect. This is just a physical act of worship you're doing. Just like when you raise your hands or you raise your voice. Look at this. Starting in verse 11. Jesus says, truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But you do not accept our testimony. If I've told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. 
so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God loved the world this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. Praise God for his word. Amen. You may be seated. Jesus clearly is referring to his crucifixion and his death for the sins of the people. This perfect sacrifice. He's lifted up like the snake. Remember? A death that would bring healing to those who look on him or in him in faith and believe they would be saved. The next few weeks we'll be diving down into verse 16, the most well-known verse in all the Bible. It's been called the Bible in miniature <laughs> because it, it contains the answer to Nicodemus's question of why did Jesus come? Jesus tells Nicodemus, for God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him, Jesus, may not perish but may have eternal life. It's simple, yet so profound. God loves us. And to be saved, all I have to do is believe. We want it to be harder, don't we? From what we just studied, what I just reviewed for us, in verse 1 of chapter 3 through verse 9, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, he says, you must be born again. And born again, that's not your effort, but God's sovereignty, right? But then in verse 10 through verse 18, we see Jesus saying something different. To be saved, you must believe. So which is it? (laughs) Is it A, God saves us, that irresistible grace, God's sovereignty working to regenerate us, that we are born again because God chooses us? Or B, man's responsibility to choose God, each person being responsible for his own sin. The answer, yes. I don't don't mean to be cheeky here. But let let me introduce you to a major paradox of scripture. It's yes, because we make a choice to believe, because God made a sovereign choice Of us before the foundation of the world. Because before we move further into John, we got to see this. We got to reconcile this in our head. Some of you have already seen this in scripture and it's frustrating you to no end. Welcome to the club. We've got t-shirts, you know. This paradox has been troubling theologians and Christians for centuries. So let's examine for the rest of our time what this paradox is and how it works to show us deeper into the mind of Christ Jesus and the heart of God. First, what's a paradox? That might help. A paradox, a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained proves to be true. You need to get what this means. A seemingly Absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained 
proves to be true. Now, sometimes non-Christians try to say that the Bible is unreliable and that it's a bunch of myths and fables and they, they point to paradoxes like this or, or what they would call contradictions and they say, see, you shouldn't even read it. It's all messed up. Don't even read it. But the real truth is the exact opposite. When we see what appears to be a contradiction or a paradox here, It's really a chance for us to dive deeper into understanding who God is in his nature. Let's see if we can frame this paradox in chapter 3 a little more closely. You ready? Here's the paradox. How can salvation be be totally a work of God and then mankind be held responsible for believing or not believing? Do you get the paradox? You don't have to understand it, but you see the rub here. How can salvation be totally a work of God and then mankind be held responsible for believing or not believing? And I want you to get this answer down in the very core of you because if you don't, the rest of the gospel of John and indeed the entire Bible will not make much sense to you. And your theology will just be jacked up. And what so many Christians do with this paradox in particular is instead of carefully studying scripture to find out the answer, they go to their own experience and their own reasoning, and that's dangerous. Believers need to accept the paradoxes of scripture because the Bible uh, calls out a bunch of them. Think about some of them. Is God one or three? Yes. Is Jesus fully God or fully man? He's both. Did Paul write Romans or did God write Romans? Yes. How is it that we gain our life by losing it? Jesus said both. Yes. How are we to be in the world but not of it? Yes. How can Jesus say in one place, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. And in another place, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent sent me draws him. Both statements are true. The key is that when you encounter a paradox like this in God's word is to understand that there is a danger in how you respond. Either A, you doubt God and that that can lead to unbelief. Or B, going deeper into the paradox in scripture can give you this deep sense of awe in the, and worship and, and lead you to this spiritual growth going, I don't understand it all, but I'm going to dig. I want to understand who God is. It's important we understand this because if we look at this paradox incorrectly or incompletely, it can lead us to a false doctrine or at minimum an incomplete doctrine. And if then we espouse a false doctrine, then we are guilty of painting a God that is not God. You see, we'll talk about this more. But this paradox in scripture, this right here, this is solid stuff. It's old school doctrine. It's not something that just came up in the last 50 years. It's doctrine that was recovered in the Reformation 500 years ago. goes back to Genesis, runs all the way through uh, Revelation. These are not opposing views. They are twin parallel truths. Think of it like this. Think of railroad tracks leading off into the horizon. You got two tracks. Each rail runs side by side the entire journey. Both rails never touch. 
The same is true for these doctrines. You with me? Let's put that into words now. God's sovereign election and man's responsibility to believe are parallel truths. God's sovereign election and man's responsibility to believe are parallel truths. They go off from infinity back to infinity in the future as our railroad tracks. When the great preacher of the 19th century, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, had preached about these two parallel truths in Scripture, he was asked, well, pastor, how do you reconcile these two truths then? I love Spurgeon's answer. He says, you don't have to reconcile friends. They just go together. Because these two truths are friends. They form the truth of how someone is saved. Both are true. Here's where the problem comes in with our minds. We can't make these two truths work together in our human understanding. They don't make sense to us. And we want to make them make sense. I've read tons of theologians, present and past, old dead guys, pastors that have tried to bridge this gap, but they can't make it work. They have all kinds of theories and fancy words, but here's what we have to realize that we can't make it work. That doesn't reflect on who God is, but it does reflect on our ability to understand. By the way, our ability to understand spiritual things, well, it's been corrupted by the fall of mankind into sin and our own scars from our own sinful lives. Remember, God is infinite, unlimited by any constraint, and we are finite, very limited in every constraint. The misunderstanding on our part here is that if we think we have to understand that everything that God says is like as simple as two plus two equals four, before we can believe it, we're in deep trouble because much of the Bible is above our pay grade. The answer is to believe them both with all of your heart while recognizing the tension that exists between them. You go, yeah, that's awkward, God. I don't know how you're doing that. Believe in divine sovereignty of God in choosing the elect and believe in human responsibility for our belief or unbelief. Two tracks. The divine sovereignty of God in our salvation will infuse this awe and thankfulness into worship. You go, I don't know how I'm saved. I don't know why you chose me. I'm awful. But you, you will worship when you go, he called me out of death into life. And at the same time, understanding human responsibility to believe will motivate your sharing of the gospel, your evangelism to your family and friends to go, you've got to believe. Hell is at stake here. And we always leave the results to God. Both are true. While I find it very interesting is that when someone tries to understand how these two things work together, they end up destroying one or the other of them. If you'll notice this, if someone goes, I believe in the sovereignty of God, but not man's responsibility, they'll destroy that side or this side, or sometimes both of them, and they walk away from the faith. These two truths are unchangeable. If you alter them with your own limited reasoning, you get false doctrine and theology very quickly. 
But I've heard well-meaning Christians ask, but doesn't God want to use us to use our own reasoning and trying to understand God and our salvation? Our reasoning can and should lead us to the conclusion that God does exist, but it cannot explain God's character and his ways. That requires divine intervention from God. Look at Deuteronomy 29, 29. This is talking about the Lord. The hidden things belong to the Lord, our God, Yahweh. But the revealed things, talking about scripture, belong to us and our children forever so that we may follow all the words of this law. Now, I don't want to give you the false impression that Christianity is some kind of just mindless affair. Just understand that it takes more than just sitting down and thinking real hard about God. Because if you do that without God, here's the problem when God says this in Isaiah 55 verse 8. God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts and your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration, Yahweh's declaration. For as heaven is higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Like an ant that crawls across a guy's foot that is sitting at a picnic table, that ant can't possibly comprehend what is going through that person's mind, their memories, their loves, their scars, why he hates his job, why he loves his this or that. And what if that person sitting at the picnic table, let's add this, what if they were like a brain surgeon, a neurologist? That ant isn't going to be able to somehow understand the theory of neurology and how the human body works and the patients that he has coming up and going, hey, I've got this brain surgery coming up and I think I'll do this instead of that. What's funny to think about though, is the vast difference between the intellectual capacity of God and the brain surgeon being infinitely greater than the brain surgeon and the ant. Do you see the difference? My point is that for a truth to be a truth doesn't depend on our own ability to understand it or agree with it. Most truths in the universe are that way. Like the laws of physics, they simply are truth. We simply live with them, even though we don't understand them. The truth is the truth is the truth is the truth. And listen, the truth doesn't care if you think it's true or not. (laughs) We might understand some of God's truth, but certainly we can't know all of it. But here's the piece of truth that we can know. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone is our source of God's revealed truth on earth. We've said this before. We'll say it hundreds of more times. Sola Scriptura. It's the Greek, uh, Greek, the Latin term for Scripture alone is our source of God's revealed truth. We only look to Scripture for truth. This is the problem with so much American Christianity in the last few decades. You've caught on to this. Many have elevated their own reasoning skills of what they believe God to be like and how he works to the same level as Scripture, the Bible. That's wrong. That's sinful. Let me just say, if you're doing that, no wonder you're confused about the Bible, brother. Your reasoning skills are whacked out at best. That's like on your best day. It's time to look to Scripture alone for what truth is. 
This bad idea of trying to use our own human reasoning to reach God comes from the last several decades of light on biblical preaching. I mean, pastors and churches that want to fill their seats and they want to fill their bank accounts have sold the church on a feel-good message about health, wealth, and how to be happy and get the most out of life instead of preaching what the Bible says, which is truth. And it's resulted in people going to hell. And what the Bible says is much of the time offensive and troublesome to to us as, as we listen to it. You remember as Jesus is preaching, there's, he's got these great big crowds and he goes, hey, you got to eat my body and, and drink my blood. And they go, hey, that's not a good marketing move, Jesus. We're not going to follow you anymore. Go on then. And yet it's the truth, truth that we need to hear straight from Jesus. So how many preach an unbiblical message that doesn't offend I mean, they may use scripture sometime, use it out of context. Most of the time, not even at all. And it has left a church body that is unable to think biblically. Unable to discern truth from error. Unable to defend itself from, listen, when false teaching comes in, when wolves come into the church that look like sheep, and they're going, oh, let me tell you what real doctrine is. No, 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 you don't have to read the Bible. I'll tell you the truth. And they go, okay, you tell us. Because here's what happens. You hear some teaching from some pastor that says, you don't need to hear the Bible to hear from God. Just listen to me. I'll tell you what it says. That's really, really dangerous. Or I've heard some preachers give this seriously flawed advice about seeking God. They, they say something like, don't read your Bible to hear from God. What you need to do is get alone. Maybe get in the mountains and get alone. And, and just listen to that little voice inside your head. <laughs> the problem with that one is I've got a lot of voices in my head. <laughs> How about you? And sometimes they're pretty messed up. I regularly battle with the old sinful desires that want sin still. Yes, I'm forgiven of my sin. Praise God. But hey, I still desire it. And that temptation to sin calls to me as a little voice. Oh, you'd be happier if. Does that to you? Does that happen to you? That's the same brain that you're trying to, to figure God out with, without scripture. Can I just give you a big warning here as, as you talk to other Christians? Big warning, safety feature here. When you hear someone in the church say, well, God told me that, dot, 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 your automatic response should be, well, where in scripture is that found? Now, please don't be a jerk about it, but ask honestly, hey, where in Scripture are you finding that? If they can't tell you, consider their message from God suspect. Don't believe it. Don't believe it until you see it backed up by Scripture, and I mean backed up in context, and that you understand it. And don't fall for any of this stuff. Well, well, well uh, what he really meant to say was this. That's Satan that does that. Now, hopefully, you know the scripture well enough to, to gauge if what they are saying is the truth. Your friend that says, hey, God told me. But if you don't, ask your shepherding elder. And if you don't understand it, ask your shepherding elder. Or ask me, come to me. Go, hey, I've heard this is true. Is that right? I go, let's sit down and look at scripture together. That will be my answer. 
Because someone may have been spoken to by God through his word, the Bible. Praise God. That's cool when we see that. We want God to speak to us through the Holy Spirit. But what I found many times as well-meaning Christians is that they have some idea about God and they say it out loud. But it doesn't match up with scripture at all or at least it very little. Little side note here, this is how cults are born. Have you ever thought about that? Guys or girls many times, they hear from what they think is God, but they don't let it match up with scripture and no one challenges them on it. You get crazy guys like Joseph Smith inventing the new religion where he quotes, here's the new religion from God. And droves of people follow that guy to destruction. I mean, think about that just for a moment. Mormonism. Just a moment. Joseph Smith, a convicted peeping Tom and convicted of making false statements, numerous false statements under oath in court, somehow hears from God and invents a new religion. Check this out. Where he says, hey, you should give me your wives and all your money for my personal pleasure. And no one checks that out. You could just copy and paste that same scenario with tons of other religions. Guys like Christian science, which is neither Christian nor science. Seventh-day Adventists, whacked. Jehovah's Witness, even Islam. Same story. God told me a new way. Oh, it doesn't match up with scripture, but he told me, and you just need to trust me. Folks, that's why we need to know the entire Bible from start to finish and then dig down deep and learn true doctrine so that we don't fall to that kind of stuff. Now, I want to say to all those people in the other religions, they can and many will turn to Jesus when they hear the truth. There's grace in the Lord. Maybe you are in one of those religions right now listening online. You can turn to Jesus. Right? You can turn. There's grace in the Lord. Listen to me. I'm counting on it. Because I've been messed up in how I've believed. Folks, this is why we need to know the entire Bible from start to finish. And then dig down deep and learn true doctrine so that we don't fall to this kind of stuff. Here's what we've got to get down. Write this down. God does not contradict himself ever. Can I get an amen on that? God does not contradict himself ever. He can't. God does not give one person one truth and then another person a different truth that contradicts this truth. Now, why is this so important to understand as we move forward in John 3? When we look at these two tracks of God's sovereign election and man's responsibility to believe, they're parallel truths. It's born out of scripture. So let's just take a few minutes to look at just a few examples. Man, I had like two or three more hours of examples. I had to pare this down. We see it here in John 3 with Nicodemus. But we also saw it back in John 1, didn't we? You remember John 1? John 1, verses 11 through 13, look at this. He came to his own, talking about Jesus, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. 
Okay, let's walk through this. Look at it in your own Bible. Let's walk through each of these verses one at a time. Watch closely as you see both of these truths. Look for both tracks, starting in verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. What do we see here? Man's responsibility, right? They should have received him. They had the scripture, the Old Testament. They should have received him. Okay, how about the next one, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God to those who believed in his name. So why did some choose to receive him while others looking at the exact same evidence did not choose him? The answer, God's sovereignty to choose as revealed in the next verse. Then check out. Verse 13, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. You following what's going on here? Are you seeing it now? Do you see the two tracks? How about this Old Testament book of Genesis? All the way back. If you read from like chapter 36 to chapter 50, we hear the story. We got to go big picture here. Story of Joseph. You remember the technicolor dream coat, right? He's sold by his brothers into slavery because they didn't like what he said. Man's responsibility, right? His brothers should not have sold him into slavery. The sin is on them. But then we see God's sovereignty in that God uses all that sinful, bad stuff that happens to Joseph for God's own purpose. Listen how Joseph himself says, after he's reunited with all his brothers and God's people, the Hebrews have been saved. Indeed, the whole known world at that time is saved from famine. Look at Genesis 50 verse 20. This is Joseph saying this. He says, you planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present results, the survival of many people. Do you see it? Both God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, both at work, both are true. Now, you might be saying, wait, isn't that God contradicting himself? No way. No way. It is God using everything, and I mean everything, to carry out his purpose. You go, does he get to do that? Hey, listen, God gets to do anything he wants. He's God, right? Here's another example. Let's jump ahead to John 6. We're going to see several here. We'll get here eventually in a regular study of John, but let's take a look at verse 35 in John 6. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Jesus told them, no one who comes to me will ever be hungry and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. But as I told you, you've seen me and yet you do not believe. Which truth is that? Man's responsibility, right? To believe. Did you see it here? Give me a nod like, like you alive. Okay, but then look in verse 37. Through 40, Jesus continues. He says, everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of these he has given me, but should, also, but should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Which truth is this one? 
God's sovereignty. We could hang out here all day, and I mean it. I'm dying to preach more on this passage, but we got to do more. We got to do, we got to keep moving. Skip down to verse 44, chapter 6. No one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Which one is this? Which truth? God's sovereign choice, right? You see it? No one can come unless the Father draws him. Skip down to verse 7. 47. We'll study these, all these verses in depth. I promise when we get there, we won't leave any of these stones unturned. This is Jesus again, verse 47. Jesus says, truly I tell you, anyone who believes in me has eternal life. Man's responsibility, our belief in Christ matters. Okay, skip down to verse 64. But there are some among us, some among you who don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and the one who would betray him. Who is this referring to? Judas. Judas. Right? Judas betrays Jesus 30 pieces of silver. He was on the inside. Judas, he would betray Jesus. Now, which truth is this referring to? It's our responsibility to believe. Judas's sin is on him. Judas was guilty. He betrays Jesus. His unbelief led to his betrayal. And Jesus also knew Judas would betray him at the end. Jesus knew that. God's sovereignty. You see him? Two tracks. How do we know that? Listen to Jesus' prayer in the garden the night before his crucifixion. Let's jump ahead to verse or chapter 17 for just a moment. He's in anguish. Jesus is praying in the garden. He prays this in verse 2. Verse 12, sorry. While I was with them, Jesus is talking to the Father. He says, while I was with them, I was protecting them by your name that you have given me. I guarded them and, no, and not one of them is lost except the son of destruction so that the scripture may be fulfilled. This is prayed by Jesus just before he is betrayed. You see both truths here, don't you? Judas was responsible for his own sin. He was not chosen by God. In fact, he was guilty, a reprobate, rejected by God. Jesus calls Judas the son of destruction. He's not one of mine. He's not a son of God. You see God's sovereignty here in that he was not chosen Judas was not chosen by God, and yet Judas was guilty by his own choice, wasn't he? I mean, it was his own responsibility. But then Jesus said this about the others given to him by his Father God. He says, I was protecting them by your name that you gave me. I guarded them, and not one of them is lost that has been given to Jesus by the Father. God's sovereignty, right? Jesus protected all that. He said, you gave me these. I didn't lose any one of them. And don't miss this. This is going to mess you up. The other disciples, besides Judas, were also guilty. But Jesus protects them, not because they were better than Judas, but it was God's infinite wisdom to do so. God makes the choice here, doesn't he? Especially in Peter's case. Think about Peter. I mean, Peter denies Jesus three times with Jesus standing there on trial for his life. When Peter had just promised that he would never deny Jesus. And yet Jesus chooses Peter and lets Judas go and sin. And he doesn't save Judas. But he does Peter. 
Is, it, is Jesus unjust in letting Judas go? I don't think so. Why? Judas is guilty. But so is Peter. Jesus makes a choice in this, his infinite wisdom and the purpose that God has in his heart. God's heart. Okay, let's jump back to John 6, then we'll get back to John 3. Go back to John 6, jump, jump down to verse 65. He, talking about Jesus, I added the red here, said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Man's responsibility or God's sovereign choice? Yes, both are true here. Or how about this one from, you remember when Peter after Pentecost, or at Pentecost, he's preaching to the Jews. This is after the resurrection of Jesus. Peter preaches this in Acts 2, 22. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God's plan and foreknowledge. Jesus knew his entire life. The purpose was to come and live a perfect holy life, fully God, fully man, both natures together to ex- for the express purpose of suffering at the hands of the Romans and then crucified as the perfect sacrifice to atone for the sins of the elect, his people. Jesus knew all of this and yet his sovereignty, in his sovereignty, he obeys the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of man's wickedness that he would then use for his own purpose. Do you see it? Man's responsibility and sinfulness and God working right in the middle of all of our mess, right there. God uses it, working together. Now, was the Apostle Peter, that was the Apostle Peter pointing that out, right? I think the Apostle Paul really points it out, these two parallel truths in the book of Romans. God's sovereignty to save and man's responsibility to believe. Someday, God willing, We'll work our way through this book of Romans together. If you think I'm going slow through John, wait until you see the length of my beard when we get done with Romans. (laughs) For the sake of time, though, we got to paint big picture here. In Romans, at this point, Paul is addressing his desire that God's people, the Jews, would be saved, but that some of the Jews, he realizes, won't be saved. Look in Romans 9, verse 6. You're going to have to follow along here. I don't have time to explain it all, but now it now is not as though now it is not as though the word of God has failed because not all who were descended from Israel are Israel. Neither is it the case that all of Abraham's children are his descendants. On the contrary, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. That is, it is not the children of the physical descendant who were God's children, but the children of the promise are considered to be the offspring. For this is the statement of the promise. At this time, I will come and Sarah will have a son. And not only that, but Rebekah conceived children through one man, our father Isaac. Now you see he's getting this big picture down. Watch this. For though her sons had not been born yet 
or done anything good or bad. Go back. It's talking about Rebecca. She's carrying twins in her tummy. Before uh, they had done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to election might stand, not from works, but from the one who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. It's quoting God. You go, well, God, that's not fair. That's not fair, God. You, you, you loved Jacob? God makes a sovereign choice in who he will love. He chooses Jacob over his brother Esau. And if you remember the story at all, Jacob was no better than Esau. In fact, you could make the argument, in earthly terms, Esau was the better guy. He was the productive one. In fact, Jacob was this lying, scheming thief. And yet God chose him before the twin brothers were even born. You go, well, that's not fair. God didn't ask you. He just didn't ask you. Why did God do that? Because he is sovereign. Does that change man's responsibility to believe? No. God chooses for his own purpose, for his own reasons that we can't know, totally know, at least not yet. Like the ant crawling across the foot of the, the doctor. But we can begin to know the motivation of why God chooses who he chooses. Write this down. God's choices are based on demonstrating his glory. God's choices are based on demonstrating his glory. All of his choices. For his glory. That's God's motivation for anything that he does. Because of his greatness. Because of his infinite wisdom. It's who he is. To demonstrate to us who he is. That's what it means, demonstrating his glory. The greatness of who God is. To demonstrate, to reveal who he is. That nothing we could do could save us. Only God is mighty to save. Let me hear a big amen on that. Only God is mighty to save. To display his awesome love for his people. But ultimately, it is because of the Father's Awesome love for the son for whom he is calling out a sacrificed people as a gift because he loves the son. Now we'll get to that. That's some deep water, brother. Ultimately, it's God loves the son. The father loves the son. Listen, it's these twin truths the entire Bible runs on. Do you get it? Because this is going to be critical. Like the rest of the book's not going to make sense unless you get this. I don't understand it either, totally. But my job is just to tell you the truth of Scripture. My job is to get you comfortable with your inability to get it. I have done my job. But just to say, it is, it's in Scripture, so I believe it. That's why we do that. Reminds me, back in the 70s, there used to be um, a bumper sticker. Do you remember this? God said it, I believe it, and that's good enough for me. I hated that bumper sticker, by the way. Now, to be accurate, it should have said, God said it, I believe it, doesn't matter what I think. Because God said it. Man has a responsibility to believe. At the same time, God is the only one that gives man responsibility. 
Man has responsibility at the same time. Only God can give man response ability. Do you see that? Man has responsibility at the same time. Only God can give man response ability. Go back to John 3.14. This is where we will pick it up next time as we dive down deep into what it means to have God's love for all the world. His sovereign choice to save some and yet all of mankind's responsibility to believe, isn't it? John 3.14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he is not believed in the name of the one and only son of God." Does God act sovereign in his sovereignty to wake people from spiritual death and to regenerate them? Yes, he does. We just spent the last weeks looking into Jesus' words of what it means to be reborn. I don't know how you could argue with anything different than Jesus' own words. God's sovereignty and yet man's responsibility to believe. Will you believe in Jesus as your Savior and Lord? Will you place your trust and faith in him? Do you believe that Jesus is who he claims to be, the Christ, the Son of God? Follow him then. Repent of your sins. Call on him. Be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come just as a collection of believers, your church, God, I'm humbled to think about why you have called us to life. God, let us be driven by your sovereignty that you would call us when we could not save ourselves. You saved us. You demonstrated that your love for us. And at the very same time, it drives me to want to share the gospel with every family member, every friend, every person I come across because I know man's responsibility to believe and it is the gospel that you have given us. Christians, as you would, just keep praying right now. Christians, you pray, keep your head bowed, your eyes closed. If you're not a Christian... Or you're not sure if you're a Christian, look up here. Just catch my eye. Here's what I want you to know. Mankind will make trying to get to God the hardest thing you could ever do. But scripture says it's so easy. Simply believe. We try to make it hard, but it's simply believe. But believe what? It is this. To believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That his death on the cross pays for your sin. And you know how we can tell if someone believes? It's imperfect, but this is how we can tell. Because they start following what Jesus said. They start acting like him.
So if you're not a Christian, simply talk to God. Say, I believe. Believe right now. That's all you've got to do. Say, I believe. I believe Jesus is who he says he is. I believe that he is the son of God. Now get this. It is not, it is not the prayer that is saving you. It's not like you're pulling some magic lever. Because if you're getting this, God has already called you out of spiritual death into spiritual life. It's not because I'm some kind of good salesman. It's that the Holy Spirit of God has breathed life in you to wake up. So now follow Jesus. Repent of your sin. Turn from it. You're forgiven of that sin. Repent of that sin. And listen, you'll sin every day. You're forgiven of all the sin. Past, present, even your future sins. All at the cross. So why do we keep repenting? Well, because we love Jesus. He keeps, he keeps forgiving. He keeps saying, follow me. Hey, get baptized. We're going to have a baptism service and not too long. Watch for that. And baptism doesn't save you either. It is a, a symbol of what, what's happened on your, your heart right here. You've come from death into life. So get, get baptized. That's another way to follow Jesus. And give him your life. Pray this. Pray this. God, thank you for saving me. Help me to follow you, Jesus, in everything I do. I give you all of my junk. All my sin. I give you all my tomorrows and I surrender to you. Because I believe Jesus is my Savior. And then end your prayer like this. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Let's. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit BentreeChurch.com.